0: all right well good 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 well uh if you have your bible uh, i hope you do i uh, if not maybe look at the persons next to you acts 13 today acts chapter 13 uh, we are picking back up in a series in which we we took a break from in november um not a break like a relationship type break but just a, just a break right where we said hey we're going to come back to this in a little bit and uh, and so that's what we're doing. We're back here, uh, Acts chapter thirteen. We're going to pick up with uh, Paul and Barnabas's really Paul's first missionary journey. And so Paul and Barnabas are going to go out uh, together with a guy named John Mark. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that here in a moment. Uh, but I want to remind you uh, kind of about Acts and, and where we're at. So Acts is the the it, it's the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts is the the historical book if you will about the foundation of our faith it's about how the church came about it's it's about God's mission or the mission of Christ continuing through the people of Christ and, and so in Acts 1 8 Jesus before he ascends into heaven he tells the disciples and all who are gathered there he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so um, we have seen throughout, up to this point in Acts, we've seen them minister almost immediately in Jerusalem. And then in the surrounding area of Judea and into Samaria, we've seen peaks of the gospel going into places that would mean it's going to the end of the earth, namely that it's going to Gentile uh, people. Uh, But now we're going to see with intentionality, Paul and Barnabas set out on a missionary journey to take the gospel to uh, Gentiles. And really kind of where that that begins. So the book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke's the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. Luke is often thought to be a disciple because he wrote one of the gospels or one of the original 12 disciples, but he's not. Luke was hired by a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus is... um, most likely a wealthy businessman of some sort. Luke was actually a physician, but would have been well-learned, well-studied because he was a doctor. And so Luke is sent by Theophilus to one, find out who's Jesus and what's going on with this Jesus guy and all of his disciples. And so he documents all that and he writes it. So Luke begins the Gospel of Luke addressing it to Theophilus. And then in the same way, he he begins the book of Acts Addressing it again, once again to Theophilus. This is him saying, now, here's what his people went and did after Christ ascended into heaven. This is what took place. And so it's really a continuation of that, which is kind of neat for us. We didn't just preach through Luke, but we did just preach through uh, the book of John. And so we got to see just the life of Christ and the way that he uh, ministered to his disciples and beyond. Uh, we got to see him crucified resurrected and and addressing uh his people as he dwelt with them for some time after his resurrection and and again acts 1 8 is just him doing that it's after his resurrection he's with his people before he ascends into heaven he says you're going to be my witnesses it's going to be through the holy spirit and so this is uh as we read acts we understand that luke is writing these things down uh, for our understanding but ultimately it was for theophilus and now we get to read it which is amazing um So, uh, yeah, I think that's good enough. Let me pray for us first before we move forward. Heavenly Father, uh, always a joy to open your word, to see um, what's written down about you and about your people and ultimately the work that you do uh, in the world and and the way that you're saving people and establishing the church. And uh, God, it gives us a real peek into how we came about and how we got here that something so long ago started with so few and has impacted the world in such a way that we sit here now believers wanting to follow you, wanting to continue this mission. And so reading through Acts gives us some insight into the way that you'll use us today uh, in various ways to take the mission of Christ, which is to seek and save the lost to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, we ask now that you would, by the power of your Spirit, speak to our hearts and minds. Transform us. Work on us. Let us not leave here the same. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So. What I'm gonna do is, uh, it's just real insane. Um, this, this, narr- this story, rather, is uh, about 48 verses long. And so what I wanna do for us today, uh, for the sake of your attention span and our time, is I'm just gonna kinda give you a summary of that. And so, uh, and, and as I'm doing that, we're gonna look at a map, uh, which will pop up up here, just a map of that first missionary uh, journey. And, and we'll get to look at this and we'll kind of pick out places uh, and we'll see based on this map, where where they're going, kind of what they're doing. So um, And then from that, what I want to do is kind of needle down a little bit based on what we talk about today and I'll, I will pull some scriptures out of here. And, and I want to talk about how the work of the Holy Spirit is what's fueling, this mission fueling this ongoing mission of, of what's happening so uh, so let's just start this way saul and uh, barnabas and a guy named john mark are gathered in antioch now this is syrian antioch there will be another antioch that comes into play in a little bit but syrian antioch and if you remember they had just established a church there there are many who had come to believe barnabas had gone there and preached the gospel people were believing he calls for saul to come and join him there and they spend it says uh, a year Or or more discipling these believers and then they're gathered together them and the church leaders which they had established and and they're gathered together and they're praying and the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says to them to set aside Saul and Barnabas uh, to to go (laughs) to to send them into uh, into the ends of the earth essentially Uh, to continue proclaiming the gospel. And so Saul and Barnabas take John Mark, who was actually the nephew of Barnabas, and sent by the Holy Spirit, they leave Antioch, and they travel down to the port city of Seleucia. So you can kind of see Seleucia there. There's a big gold dot on all of that. There would have been some maybe close to 20 miles or less distance between those two places and so uh, they travel down to Seleucia where they set sail, this is a port city, uh, to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is this island here, which was uh, a little over 100 miles in, in length. And they land, um, uh, when they land at Cyprus, they land at uh, S- Salamis. <laughs> Salamis. <laughs> but they land there, and then they go throughout the island of Cyprus, proclaiming, the Gospel of Jesus. And then our narrative picks back up again uh, as they come to Paphos, and there they encounter a guy uh, named Bar Jesus, uh, also Elymas, who is a false prophet. He's a magician. He's uh, much like Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, who we read about uh, just a couple of chapters ago. Uh, but now would have been a few months ago. So. <laughs> uh, and so they come across him, and uh, Alimus, or Bargesus, has this strong relationship with the proconsul there whose name is Sergius Paulus. Now, Sergius Paulus is the highest-ranking official in, Roman, in, in this Roman senatorial province. So he is, he, he's the top dog probably on this island for sure. Um, but Sergius this proconsul is intrigued by the message I guess bar Jesus had gone back and said hey there's some there's some visitors here they're saying some crazy stuff and 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 I don't like it and so he calls for them to come he, he wants to hear what they have to say and so they go and they talk to Sergius uh, about the gospel well Jesus doesn't like it so he opposes them um, and I think it's more so because he sees him as a threat to this profitable relationship that he has with sergius that he he can kind of get what he wants from the proconsul he is really the spiritual leader probably on this island and so saul confronts barjesus in verses 9 and 11 of 13. I, i did want to read that to you because it's very strong language it says but saul who was also called paul so This is where Saul's name changes, right here. It's just kind of like a side note. It just suddenly transitions, and it'll be referred back to as Saul occasionally, but mostly from here on out, he's Paul. Uh, Oftentimes we think it happened when he was knocked off his donkey or when he was traveling on the road uh, to Damascus, but it didn't. This happened separately from that, and all it is is a name change based on where he's at now. Paul is the Roman version of Saul. And so now that he's going into Gentile territory, which is largely Roman occupied, he uses Paul instead of Saul. So, sorry, uh, there's no major significant like spiritual reference there. Um, I wish it was. It would preach really well and, and has for a long time. But, <laughs> but uh, so it says here, But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, I've had like my father look intently at me. I've had, I've had people look intently at me. I think I know like the look they're talking about, right? It's, it's that look of kind of disgust. It's that look of what are you doing? It's that look of, of you have no idea what you're diving into. You have no idea of the things of which you speak, right? You've had this look maybe from a parent or a teacher or, or someone in your life. He looks intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Now, I've never been called that. (laughs) But he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I wish Paul had just spoke more clearly here so we could understand what he meant. But Paul makes it so clear that that Bar-Jesus is an enemy of the gospel. He is an enemy of this message which needs to go forth, and he is placing himself directly in the enemy's hands to be used by him. And he may not even understand it. It's almost, this is one of the things we talked about in biblical manhood this past week, it's almost as if Paul looks past Bar-Jesus, or maybe into Bar-Jesus is a better way to say it, and speaks directly to Uh, the enemy by which he is being controlled by in this moment. And he accuses him of some massive things. And he goes on to say, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So poor Jesus is made blind for a season, for a time. We don't know what happens to him after this. We don't know if maybe this caused him to come to belief. Uh, But what we do know is that the blindness was to represent his spiritual blindness. It it was to show the difference between who he thought he was and what he really was. Uh, It was to make him aware of his great need for this Savior that they're proclaiming. But here's the amazing thing. Seeing the power that was demonstrated there by the apostles, but also hearing the proclamation of the Word... The proconsul believes, places his faith in Jesus in that moment. And that's really, that's the story we have there. From there, it says that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark set sail from Paphos up to Perga, which is in the area of Pamphylia. Now, an interesting thing happens here too, which we don't know a ton about. It says that John leaves them there and travels back to Jerusalem, which would be off this map a little ways down here so it'd be it it was quite a journey but he travels by boat back to jerusalem and acts chapter 15 we're made aware that paul didn't like it that he and barnabas had had a disagreement over this and and but other than that we don't know a ton most speculation is around the fact that uh john mark was young that, that he was uh, probably homesick, that at the time he thought, hey, it'll be cool to travel with my uncle and this guy named Saul Paul, and we'll go up into uh, these unknown areas and we'll proclaim the gospel. But things may have got a little, bit, a little bit real for him when he encountered that opposition that they were getting. He may realize this may not be as easy as I thought it was, and so maybe he, he gets homesick and, and heads home. But what happens from there is they, they let him go, and then they go up to Perga, or they go up from Perga uh, to Pisidian Antioch, which is up here. So not Syrian Antioch, but Pisidian Antioch. And they preach the gospel there. It says that they showed up, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue, and they're sitting there and they're dwelling among the, all the Jews who are around, and they're they're listening to the scriptures uh, be read from the Law and the Prophets. And once they're finished. Uh, the leaders there, uh, the Jewish leaders there, ask them, they turn to him and say, hey, do you guys have anything that you would like to say today? Probably as just a way to welcome Jewish visitors into the area. And Paul stands up and he preaches a three-part sermon like a good Baptist preacher would, right? Just kidding. So he preaches this three-part sermon. And in verses 16 through 22, what he does is he provides a a sketch of the Old Testament. He points back to the history of the Old Testament in pieces and shows how it was working forward to the provision of Jesus Christ and how Christ was coming and Christ was the promised Savior. That's what he begins to show in verses 23 through 37 is how Jesus is the fulfillment of this Old Testament sketch And how everything that was building there finds its meaning in Jesus. And he says Jesus, though he was guiltless, there was no reason for him to be executed. He was executed on a cross. And he adds this statement that once the rulers had carried out everything that was prophesied about the promised Savior in the Old Testament, they pulled him down from the cross and they buried him in a tomb. And then in verses 30, 30 through 33a, we read this. So Jesus is in the tomb. This perfect, sinless man has died. And Paul's trying to make them aware of why. And he says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news. Amen. Amen. That what God promised to the fathers, meaning those Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, earlier than that, but even beyond that, that this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So everything that He had promised to these guys, He's fulfilled in Christ. And then He gives them this invitation to believe. And it's just beautiful, so I've got to read it to you in verse 38 through, just read through 41 just imagine maybe that you're sitting in the synagogue here and you're surrounded by jewish people and 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 gentile converts and you're hearing for the first time this message about all these things that you've heard read week in and week out how it points to this one man jesus christ and then the guy says this to you he says let it be known to you therefore that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you wait what we're having to work according to the old testament law to 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 atone for our sins over and over and again and we're tired of it in fact it's not working we can't keep the law we're struggling we're failing in all ways doing this and now you're saying that this man christ is the forgiveness of sins his death and resurrection marks the forgiveness of sins He says, and by him, Paul goes on to say, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, namely sin, and its curse, death. He says, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. So even the prophets, hundreds of years before this, prophesied that this would happen. He says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Holy smokes! So God, even knowing from the beginning of time that, that when I place Christ there, and when I place that message in front of people after Christ dies and is resurrected and the atonement for sin is made, still this message will go forth and is good as it could possibly be, this news is being as good as it could be, it'll fall on deaf ears. People will scoff at it. They'd rather die and perish than turn their lives over to the Lord. He says, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And Paul's looking at these people and he's saying, don't be like that. This is the message we get to take into the world. Don't follow in these footsteps. We preach the forgiveness of sins through Jesus and through all who will believe in Him as their Savior. I'm just reminded of 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I'll summarize it this way. He says, For our sake, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to bear our sin on the cross, so that we, who knew no righteousness of our own, might become the righteousness of God. This is the message we proclaim. And, it, and we read here in, the, in the, the narrative that after Paul's message, the people begged them to stay until the next Sabbath. So Paul and Barnabas, they go out and many of the Jews, many Gentile converts to Judaism were following them. And it says that Paul and Barnabas spoke with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they're saying don't, don't continue in this Old Testament law which can't do, it, it can't free you. But continue now in the grace of God, the message we've proclaimed to you. And we read in in the narrative that on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of, of these apostles. And when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. This sounds really familiar, right? This has been throughout the narrative. As crowds gather and want to hear these apostles speak, the Jewish leaders are filled with jealousy. Why? Because power is leaving in that moment influence is leaving in that moment their position that they enjoy is leaving them in that moment and they're filled with jealousy but it also says that they begin to contradict now what they were saying they begin to try to show ways that these were these were lies and they even scolded the apostles for the things they were saying they were mad at him like you're jewish how, how dare you preach something else but but it says there that paul and barnabas spoke Boldly, they first condemn the Jews for their unbelief, and then second, they announce that they will now turn their attention to the Gentiles. Paul quotes Isaiah forty nine six, which says, "I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth." Now, the interesting thing about Isaiah forty nine six is it's spoken about the servant, capital S servant in Isaiah, which is a reference to Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy about Christ that he will be the light to the Gentiles, that he'll bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And now these apostles who identify themselves in Christ by faith are saying, this is our job. This is what we're to do. And so the Gentiles began rejoicing. It says that they glorified the word of the Lord. Now I would say that's quite a different response from these Jewish leaders upon hearing it. And, and then we read this. In 1348, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there's this crowd gathered around and there's many of them who believe. And it says here that as many of those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Believed. And what this means is nothing less than God acted sovereignly in the response of the people, drawing them to Himself so that they would come to Him. The word of the Lord spread throughout the region. The Jews mounted a resistance against the apostles. They drove them out of the city, it says. And Paul and Barnabas, they, it says that they shook the dust from their feet against them, which is a sign of judgment towards stubborn unbelievers. It's a way of saying, you're not worth the effort. It's not worth the effort to try to reason with you anymore. You become unreasonable. And then it says that they headed out to Iconium, which is where we'll we'll pick up next week. But what we're left with is this beautiful verse at the end of our narrative in verse 52, and it says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now from the beginning of what we've looked at today we read that the Holy Spirit told them set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them to their sending where we read being sent out by the Holy Spirit they went To all the events that transpired, we read about Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit. We read about the disciples here speaking boldly about the Lord in the midst of great opposition. To this final sentence of our passage, which says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What we see in all of those things is that the Spirit was with them, fueling the mission of Christ through them. And that's really what I want to land on today. I've got a couple of things, three things to share with you from that but the big idea really i think of the text today is that the mission of christ is fueled by the work of the holy spirit the mission of christ is fueled by the work of the holy spirit i want to take this narrative that we looked at and i want to show you three ways that i think the holy spirit fuels the mission of christ the first is that he does it by equipping believers to be witnesses for christ He's equipping believers to be witnesses for the Lord. Now, if you'll remember, in John chapter 14, when we when we walk through that, or maybe you've just heard these verses before, Jesus is, he's trying to comfort the disciples. This this whole the, the whole chapter of John 14 is really about his comfort. That they're anxious because he's just told them I'm gonna have to go away. And they don't like this idea. They want Christ to stay with them forever. I mean, they think that he's going to establish like his kingdom, his rule then. They even ask him again in Acts 1-7, like, is it now that you're going to establish that? And he says, oh, no, 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 it's not for you to know times and seasons. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll become my witnesses. Like, that's the role he has for them, is that you'll be witnesses. And so this is, this is what he says in John 14 as he's trying to comfort them. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, that's tough. And he says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's saying, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and here's how you're going to do it. I'm going to send you a helper to be with you. He will dwell in you. He's going to be with you, and he's going to help you in this. It is the Spirit of truth. He is my very own Spirit. And then he goes on to say, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I just love this so much that you and I are dwelling at a time where we, we're living in a world at a time where we don't have Christ walking side by side with us, but we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is, who is helping us walk in accordance with the scriptures, to follow the Lord, to obey His commandments. Who's teaching them to us? Who's bringing them to remembrance? Th- these moments happen a lot where I'll I'll be reading scripture. I'm going through you know the the Bible plan that we're doing, and and then also reading other things at, at different times. And man, there's sometimes where you just read and read and read. And man, you feel like you don't don't remember it. Maybe I'm alone in that. But sometimes I walk away. I'm like, well, that was. That was good, and that was interesting, and Father, I pray you would use this to, to help me walk with you. But there's moments I don't feel super fruitful in that time, but then days later, weeks later sometimes, I'll, I'll be maybe talking with one of my children, or my wife, or, or one of you all, and, and it's like, just in a moment, I can remember the scriptures I've read, and I, and I can apply them to the situation there, and it's just the Holy Spirit doing what He said He was do. He's helping. He's with us in those moments. He's helping us follow God. The Holy Spirit, though, is not a gift to the world. The world doesn't know Him. The Holy Spirit is a gift to the people of God. And He comes to you when you place your faith in Jesus. We read that you receive the promised Holy Spirit as a seal of your inheritance in Christ to be received in glory. This is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And here we read in John 14 that you received the promised Holy Spirit as a helper for the Christian life, growing your faith in Jesus, teaching you what God has said in his word and bringing it to your remembrance at various moments in your life, that he is always with you. Therefore, you and I don't have to walk around like whipped dogs. We can walk around knowing that we walk with the power of the very Spirit of God, which raised Christ from the dead, dwelling in in us. We don't live as those who are afraid and, or of what harm the world may bring, of what harm a, a boss may bring to us, or what harm a friend may bring to us, or what harm someone may bring to us as we're proclaiming the gospel and trying to live for the Lord. We don't live in fear of that because we know whose we are. We know where our hope rests. It rests in Christ. And we are those who are being guarded by God's peace through the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. According to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that that we don't have to worry about anything, but we can be prayerful in everything knowing that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. That we'll know a peace that the world can't understand. This is who we are. This is what we're being guarded by. This is how the Holy Spirit is helping us. God is faithfully equipping His people. In Ephesians 2.10, it speaks about us this way. It says that we are His workmanship. Meaning we're, we're a project in which He's created. like, But we're a finished project. We're a completed project, right? We've, we've been made new. We're new creations. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we've been made new in Christ to do good works. Which God prepared, it says, beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has good works for you as His child. And he's prepared them beforehand that you would walk in them. That as you're faithful in the spaces you have, faithful standing in a grocery line, to notice things around you and to be helping others, as you're faithful to share the gospel with a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, as you're faithful to, to parent your children in a way that would honor the Lord. As you're faithful to dwell with your wife or your husband in an understanding way, in a way that would glorify God in heaven. As you're faithful to do those things, you're being indwelt by the Lord. Those are good works which God has prepared beforehand. And you're walking in them. He's created you to walk in those spaces. He's put you in those spaces and He's helping you in those moments. You see, the Holy Spirit will use your life to point others to Jesus. That's the lone goal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit's mission is to glorify the Son and the Father it's not to glorify himself he's often been referred to as the shy member of the Trinity because he's not wanting attention for himself he's simply pointing others to Jesus Christ he's helping others see Christ more clearly And he will gift you in different ways he'll place you in different places but rest assured you're uniquely wired uniquely placed by God where you are to be used by him. He wants to use your life for his glory. To ensure that the mission of Christ which is to seek and save the lost continues through you his people. Now in light of this in light of this I have to ask myself do I trust the God who began the good work in me to also complete the good work in me? Or do I take the carpentry tools from time to time and say, hey, let me me mold that for a moment. You're moving a little slow here, Jesus. Do we go on in fear in our lives? Do we go on in worry? Do we go on ignoring His Word and His promises, His desire to use us for Himself? Do we go on ignoring 2 Corinthians 5? which assigns to us the role of ambassadors. Brothers and sisters, the same Holy Spirit who indwelt Paul and Barnabas and all these believers that we read about lives in you. He resides in you, equipping you to be a witness for Christ in the spaces that you occupy. Again, friend, spouse, co-worker, parent, employee, neighbor, stranger. I think the second thing that, that I see as far as the, the way the Holy Spirit fuels the mission of Christ is by awakening unbelievers' hearts to trust in Christ. He's awakening unbelieving hearts to trust in Christ. I pointed 1348 out to you, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This has to be one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. By this statement, we understand what Christ meant in John 6, when Christ says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to. Also in John 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul sums up these thoughts about the God who draws and the people who come in Romans 8, 29 through 30. It's often called the golden chain of redemption. And it says this, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He who begins the good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. We must understand that He's beginning it by His grace. He's completing it by His grace. And it will be completed one day by His grace. You and I are not earning this in some way. So what makes a person hear the voice of the Lord and come to Him? what causes that well nicodemus asked the same question essentially of jesus christ in, in john chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8 jesus had been doing some ministering and the pharisees didn't like it and one of them named nicodemus comes to him at nighttime because you know he doesn't want his, his buddies know when he went and he says rabbi we know that you are a teacher Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think in this moment, Jesus is revealing something that's already taken place in Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? All the mama said, "Uh uh-uh, ain't not happening, right? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then in verse 8, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the reason I said that about it, I think he's describing something that's already happened in Nicodemus. Is One, Nicodemus came to him asking. He comes seeking the Lord. People will not seek the Lord on their own, apart from something which has taken place on the inside of them. We're dead to our sins and trespasses. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. According to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But God, being rich in mercy and with great love, he's saved us by Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, by grace. And so we see that we're not saved kind of in our own works or by ourselves. We're saved by grace. Because if it were works or something that we have done, We could boast about it. We could say, look how awesome I am. Pulled myself up by my bootstraps one day and I walked over to the Lord and I said, hey, you're mine. And God's just letting us gently, nicely know, look, there's nothing in you that was worthy of being saved. There was nothing in you that demanded my righteousness save you. I did this because of my grace, my great love for you. And so I think he's describing something that's already taken place in Nicodemus at the end of John, We read again about Nicodemus, and he's there. He's there helping Christ down off the cross and giving him a proper burial. That's really the last we read, but that to me is enough to show Nicodemus knew who Christ was. He gave his life, essentially put himself in harm's way uh, to show his appreciation for the Lord, how much he loved him. And so I, I bring that up. But because I, at first I said that in Acts 13, 48, that, that that's a beautiful verse because we see God's guarantee to save sinners come to fruition. We see that God's fulfilling His promise to save people who are lost. What's more beautiful than that? Nothing. We see that as He draws people to Himself, that they come. And that gives us, you and I, as we go out into the world, as we as we minister to our children and to our friends and, and beyond, Like it gives us great assurance as ambassadors for Christ that there are people who will respond in faith to Jesus Christ, to the message of the gospel. Which is wonderful news. And I think another reason I find this verse beautiful is because it frees you from any guilt and shame when people don't immediately turn to Jesus. Like You don't have to think about all the what ifs. It rescues you from what ifs. It rescues you from the what if I said that differently. Maybe they would have responded differently. What if I had asked the question uh, this way instead of that way? What if... And you just put all of it on yourself that, that like their faith rests on your ability to be amazing presenting the Gospel to people. And praise the Lord it doesn't. You are called to be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know the message and speak the message, yes. So share the gospel clearly. Share it boldly with others. Be a planter. Be be a waterer for some seed that someone else planted. But leave the results to God because only God can make dead souls come to life. It's by His power. It's by what He does. So be faithful where you are planted. Be faithful with the gifts that you're given. Pray for the fruit to be evident that people will come to know the Lord, that they'll continue walking in the grace of God. And trust that however you are used, a planter, a waterer, one who seems to have been rejected, that you're being used for the glory of God. That it'll all be for His glory. The final thing I want you to see here is that uh, the Holy Spirit fuels this mission by continuously filling believers for ongoing mission. The disciples were filled with joy. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. This brought to mind as I was reading that Psalm 1611, which says, and David's writing there, he says, In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oftentimes we hear Christ say, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. And the thought immediately is that we think about all the ways Christ can make life as we know it better. Right? Like, like how can I insert Christ into my life and He's going to make that abundant? But the life-altering reality however, is that Christ is saying that you have one way of living, you have a way of life, and that way is heavily influenced by the enemy's desire to steal and to kill and to destroy your life. But I have come to show you a brand new way to live, a brand new life with better realities, with greater rewards and which last forever. It's unending. It's a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. See, the call to follow Christ is a call to deny your worldly desires. When we say deny yourself, we're talking about you deny your worldly desires. Not that you're denying like, your humanity and who you are, your personality. All those, some of those things, there might be elements of that that are sinful, but, but ultimately you're still you and God's wired you the way you are and He wants to use you in that way and in even better ways than you would imagine. So you're denying those worldly desires. You're putting to death the the deeds of the flesh. You're saying, I don't want to be a a servant to lying anymore. I don't want to be a servant to uh, lust anymore. I don't want to be a servant to, to greed anymore or fear anymore or anger anymore. I want to be used to serve the Lord. And then you're following Him by walking in the Spirit of God of which Romans 6, 7, and 8 describe just in this beautiful wording of how we've we've come to life in the Spirit that we're able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk in the Spirit of God that we're dead to sin that we can now use the members of our bodies for righteousness and not for unrighteousness anymore. Like You and I have control over this now because we're walking in the Spirit of God. Our minds have been set free. And what the Lord is saying, He says, like, it's a hard call to follow Me. You don't just insert a piece of Me into pieces of your life. Like, you you lay those things down and you come after Me. That's a hard call, but it's one that leads to the very best kind of life. A life lived beyond yourself. A life lived to the glory of God. Ephesians 5.18 says this about the Spirit. It says, do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The command there, be filled, in the Greek is a present imperative. It does not describe a one-time filling, rather a regular pattern of life in which God by His Spirit is going to continuously fill His children with more of Himself. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, if you are not being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's because you're not working for the Holy Spirit. You're not working in the Holy Spirit. Listen, you do not need a man to lay hands on you in some sensationalized manner. It's anti-biblical. It's extra-biblical. What you need is to walk in obedience to the Savior of your soul, the Creator of the heavens and the earth then you'll be filled with the Spirit. It's to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him, and He fills you with more of Himself. We're guilty of being so drunk on the world, so so love drunk on the enemy's way of taking life away from us, that we're missing the abundant life that's available to us through the Spirit of God by our faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than a life filled with worldly things that never bring lasting fulfillment, you are offered a life lived for the Lord in which you receive continual filling by the Holy Spirit. In which you never run dry. Where you will find true fullness. True. You'll be fully filled with joy. Truly given pleasures forevermore. I still love the C.S. Lewis quote where it says, too often we're like children who settle for mud pies in the slums, for playing with mud pies in the slums when we're being offered a vacation by the sea. You see, you must decide today whether or not you're going to give yourself fully to the Lord and the work that He has prepared for you. You have to decide today whether or not you will go on playing with those mud pies in the slums or whether or not you're going to take him up on a holiday by the sea. And if you choose to follow the Lord, you become in that moment an ambassador for Christ. Responsible for the message of the Lord going forth into all the world. If you've already chosen to do so, then you are that. And what I want to encourage you to do today is to trust the Lord, to fuel His mission through you by the Holy Spirit. And then He's going to do that. And you look for it in these ways that He's going to equip you to become a witness for Him. He's going to equip you in that. He's going to teach you the Scriptures. as You, you have to open this thing up and read it, but He's going to teach it to you. He's going to give you understanding. And He's going to help you recall it. He's going to help you walk in obedience. And as you're sharing the gospel with your children, with others around you, you'll get to experience the Lord awaken a dead heart to rise and follow Him. What joy! And in that joy, you'll ride real high on the waves of that feeling. And He's going to continuously fill you with joy and more of himself forevermore. What a life we've been given to be ambassadors for Christ. This mission's fueled by the Holy Spirit. Won't we trust God to do this in us today? Would you stand to your feet this morning?